0: My dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. at our last study we gave consideration to the incredible action of Doeg the Edomite, who without thought for moral principle or spiritual values, or loyalty to the truth, or consideration for the holy place of the priesthood within the nation, virtually annihilated the whole of the priesthood, with the exception of Abiathar, who was the sole priest to escape, who then made his way to David, and there abode with David. You may recall that we did make a comment that we would have just a brief additional remark to make concerning Abiathar, as we find in the closing words of the 22nd chapter, where... You will recall that Abiathar came to David, showed him all that had happened, or told him all that had happened. Of course, David felt an element of guilt for what had happened to the priest because of his own involvement in going to Nob in a way that he should not have done. And he was really very deeply struck by his own folly in regard to what had happened. Although we did explain and we we were able to see that it was not actually David's fault that this happened. Although certainly he was involved in what did happen. So in verse 22 of chapter 22, David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. So all he could do for Abiathar was to give him a home, and to give him comfort, and to give him encouragement, and to give him protection. And so the final words there in chapter 22 are Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. You will be safe with me. But those words we found were very, very wonderful in verse 23 when David, filled with tenderness and compassion for the lonely and the destitute Abiathar says Abide thou with me. And we were reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 11 when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, in that sense, again, we're able to see David as a type of Christ. Now, from this point on, throughout all the sufferings of David and all the persecutions that he endured, there were two men that were always there. One was Gad, the prophet. And the other was Abiathar, the priest. And this was the beginning of a very long friendship. We might say almost a lifelong friendship between Abiathar and David, as was the case with Gad the prophet. Neither of them feature widely in the events of David's life, but we know that they were always there. And through thick and thin, no matter what happened, those two men stood by David, until, until the last days of David's life and then Abiathar, after a lifetime of sharing in the sufferings of David, as we are also to share in the sufferings of Christ, he made a fatal mistake and in actual fact he found himself at the, near the end of his life in a position not altogether that dissimilar from what we have seen Doeg doing In chapter 22. For example, if we turn over for a moment, keeping a hand in chapter 23 there, we turn over to the 1st of Kings, chapter 2, we'll observe the folly of Abiathar. And the lesson that we should really learn from this. Actually, in chapter 1, we should have a look at that uh, first of all. In chapter 1, you'll notice that in verses 5 to 7, It makes clear that Adonijah, in verse 5, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He decided that he would seize the throne, when David, of course, at this time, was still alive, but very, very close to death. Adonijah, full of pride, disregarding the instruction that his father had given, rises himself up, exalted himself, and said, I will be king and he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him and his father had not displeased him at any time in saying why hast thou done so and he also was a very goodly man and his mother bare him after Absalom and he conferred with Joab the son of Zeruiah and with Abiathar the priest and they following Adonijah helped him now just cast your eye down to verse 13 where we find that Nathan, the other prophet, well aware of the skull dungaree that is going on, and the attempt to undermine David's declared will, and Yahweh's will in this matter, he gets hold of 'er uh, Bathsheba, Bathsheba, and he says to her in verse 13, Go and get thee in unto King David, and say unto him, Didst not thou, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me? So David had already declared who was to be the king, so you see, Abiathar, and of course Joab made a fatal mistake here for which he paid for with his life, but Abiathar, after a lifetime of sharing the afflictions with David and never deserting him, never turning against him, at this end time of this period, Abiathar makes a fatal wrong decision. And so we find in chapter 2 and in verse 26 and 27, we find that Solomon deals with Abiathar. Verse 26 says, And unto Abiathar the priest said the king, Get thee to Anathoth, unto thine own fields, for thou art worthy of death, but I will not at this time put thee to death, because thou bearest the ark of Adonai Yahweh before David my father. And let's notice this. And because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto Yahweh, that he might fulfil the word of Yahweh, which he spake concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And you'll notice with the little little letter C there, you've got a cross-reference back to the 1st of Samuel, chapter 2 and verses 31 to 35, wherein Yahweh foretold and indeed stated that the priesthood, the line of the priestly line, would be taken away from the family of Eli. Now it is done. But you see how it is done. At the same time, Solomon remembers the life of Abiathar and remembers, as he says here, I will not kill thee, because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. So he didn't take his life. And yet, what an incredible mistake that was! Here he had stayed with David, shown his loyalty, shared in his sufferings, as we share the sufferings of Christ. And so, surely Abiathar stands there as a type, brethren and sisters. Those who may well bear the heat and burden of the day. Those who may remain faithful to Christ and to the brethren of Christ, to the Ecclesia. Those who fight the good fight of faith in upholding and defending the truth against attack from within and without. Those who manifest the principles of godliness in their lives. But yet at some time late in their lives some influence or something comes into their mind or into their heart, into their head and they betray Christ and they turn away to false beliefs or a false way of life that is contrary to the things of Christ and the commandments of Christ. And in effect they lose all that they had previously given themselves for. There's surely a very powerful lesson in that, brethren and sisters, A very powerful lesson indeed. The idea of remaining faithful and steadfast to Christ throughout a long life, or perhaps a shorter one, depending on the circumstances, but ultimately simply to turn against the way of Christ and the things of Christ. And it reminds us that we are consistently taught in the word of truth, that we must be consistent in upholding the cause of the truth and the cause of righteousness. And once we seize hold upon the way of life and we seize hold upon Christ as our Saviour, we must never let him go and we must never betray him and we must never betray others who are striving similarly and in the spirit of the truth that we know to be so. As we find happened to David with the men of Kailah in chapter 23. But you know, at the same time, we should bear in mind the fact that this is not purely a negative thing. Because while this is what Abiathar did and it was a foolish and a stupid thing to do and it cost him his life ultimately, yet the same thing can work in reverse. You know, time and again we learn in Scripture, don't we, that as far as Yahweh is concerned, it is not what we were is important to him. It is what we are. And often I have had brethren and sisters come to me over the years and say, look, when I look back upon my life and the truth and I consider all the, 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 the appalling blunders that I've made, the things that I've done wrong, where I've let the truth down, I've failed Christ, I've failed the brethren, I feel very strongly that there can never be any hope for me in the kingdom. And then we remind them under those circumstances exactly what we're looking at here. What happened with a biophe can be done in reverse. We can have a case, or cases, and there have been many of them. Some that we've known personally, but many, many hundreds, probably thousands that we've not known of, where a brother or a sister or brethren and sisters have been very weak in the truth and very dilatory in their service to Christ and very apathetic in their attitude toward the Word and their reverence for God. In other words, they have been in effect almost Christadelphians in name only. But eventually their eyes have been opened to what is required in our commitment to Christ, and our commitment to the truth. And they become renewed. And they look back upon the folly of their past ways, and they do the very opposite of what Abiathar did, and they turn wholeheartedly to the truth. They renew themselves in the things of the truth. So we all need to remember that. We don't want to become an abiyatha, but if need be, we can always become the reverse of, of an Abiatha, Always remembering that as far as Yahweh is concerned, it is not what we were that is so important to him, but what we are. And how we will be when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So we have those remarkable lessons from Abiatha, And they should be lessons that we should learn very well indeed. And so in chapter 23, we find that David, still of course in hiding, and having uh, certainly hidden himself even more fully since the dreadful incident involving Doeg, the Edomite, we find that he is again in hiding, but then word comes to David in chapter 23. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Kilar, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And Yahweh said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines, and save Kaila. Now, we need to remember that at this time, the nation of Israel was in a state of chaos, as we have pointed out on numerous occasions during some of these more recent chapters that we have been studying. You see... Saul was not leading the nation. He was getting no leadership at all. And while Saul spent most of his time sitting under a tree, glowering at the prospect of taking David by the throat and killing him, and not worrying about what was happening to the nation, the Philistines were constantly making incursions into the land. You'll notice there that it says in verse 1, they rob the threshing floors. It's not dealing with with the Philistines making pitched battles against the armies of Israel, or the army of Israel, but rather incursions into the land, to rob here, to plunder there, to kill somewhere else, to steal cattle and goods. And they were almost roaming at will throughout the land at this particular time. And so that was the situation. But they had come against this particular city. The name Kailah is a name which means citadel. And so therefore it is implied that it was a fortified city. There were cities in Israel at this time, as in various ages, that were fortified and others that were not. This place, Kailah, was to be found in the lowlands of Judah, only two miles west of the forest of Tereth, which is where we last found David in chapter 22. So we can understand that it was a town very close to where David was entrenched and therefore he was relatively in a position to help them. In actual fact, this place, Kilar, was virtually in the very centre of the territory of Judah. And so therefore, it it again illustrates Saul's increasing inability to guard and to hold his kingdom. And remember that at this time, the Philistines were also as far into the land as Rephaim and Bethlehem. I don't know whether we looked at that earlier on or not, but you know, Rephaim is actually a valley, the valley of Rephaim. And the valley of Rephaim runs from just outside the city walls of Jerusalem and runs way down as far as Bethlehem. So Bethlehem and Rephaim are somewhat related. But if we keep a hand in there and go for a moment to the 1st of Chronicles chapter 11, we'll see that when David was in the cave of Dullam, which of course is before the time we're up to now, Uh, at that stage it was evident that the Philistines were everywhere to the land. They were roaming at will, as we said, stealing, plundering, feeding, killing, destroying, upsetting cities and people and so forth. In the first of Chronicles 11 and verses uh, 15 to 18, we have that incident which is known to us fairly well. Now three of the thirty captains went down to the rock of David into the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim, Which means that they were right there between Bethlehem and the city of Jerusalem. And David, it says in verse 16, was then in the hold and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. And David longed and said, oh that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem. That is at the gate. And these three very brave men, the three break through the army of the Philistines, verse 18 tells us, and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David was was so staggered at the courage and the devotion and the dedication of these men that he could not bring himself to drink it. And so he poured it out to Yahweh. Their courage, their faithfulness, their dedication, he recognised for what it was and offered it, instead of taking it for himself, offered it as a sacrifice to Yahweh. But our main point here, in alluding to this incident at this point, is to show just what the Philistines were doing and how far entrenched in the land they were. So here we find them at this place, Kaila. Ky- um, and there they went to rob the threshing floors. And so in verse 2, David inquired of Yahweh as to what he should do. And that, of course, is typical of David, is it not? David was a man who was very rarely in his life ever to make a decision involving others and involving his own life in the truth without first making an appeal to Yahweh. And you know, I've thought over many, many years in reading and studying things concerning the life of David, That the, The most preeminent feature of David's life, we usually say, is his faith. And I think that that is a very apt description. But to me, I would take that a little further. And I would say that time and time and time again in the life of David, we see not just simply his faith, but his childlike faith. And apart from those occasions when he failed, David exhibited a childlike faith toward Yahweh. It was as though he was a child and Yahweh was a great father, which of course is true. But David, although a mighty man, a great warrior, a fearless fighter for the things of the truth, one who had killed his thousands and tens of thousands of Philistines, yet as far as Yahweh was concerned, David was like a child. And he would do nothing without turning to Yahweh. We'll look at some of those incidents a little later on as time unfolds in the course of the study. But you see, David, it might well be said at this time, here when they, they word, bring word to him that the Philistines fight against Kilar and uh, what about coming and doing something about it, it may well be said that David had enough troubles of his own at that particular time. He had problems just in even keeping alive and the men, the 600 men that were with him at this particular time, without any to worry about anybody else. But David was one who was always concerned for the welfare of others, rather than considering any personal danger which might come additionally upon himself. And in that regard, he is surely also a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And next to that, perhaps we should mark Romans 15 and verse 3 where we have David here as the type of Christ who, uh, of whom we read in Romans 15 and verse 3 that he pleased not himself. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ was devoted to Yahweh totally and therefore to the work of Yahweh and the things of God. And therefore the Lord Jesus Christ was never one to turn anyone away. He was never one to avoid a responsibility in any sense whatever. And so as Christ pleased not himself, we find David here doing exactly the same thing. He could easily have said when these people came urgently to him and said, look, we're in trouble. We're in big, big trouble. We need your help and the 600 fighting men that you have with you. We need you to come and help us. David could very well have been of a mind to say, look, don't come to me. Go and see Saul. It's his job. He's the king. He should be leading the army against the Philistines. I've got enough problems of my own. Don't come worrying me about it. But he doesn't do that. He does what he ought to do. He does what we should always do. And that is to face with any situation where an action is required on our part, we should ask the blessing of Yahweh. You see, David remembered Leviticus 19 and verse 18, that thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. And that to David was not simply something to be learned off by rote. It was something that was very practical in his day-to-day life. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. So he now manifests his grasp of that ideal in a practical way. So in these very opening words of this chapter, brethren and sisters, we're reminded of the fact that life in the truth is intensely and essentially practical. It is not theoretical. It is what we do because of what we believe. And that really is a true definition of faith. We can give many, many definitions of faith. But really it comes down to that, doesn't it? Because faith that is a mere theoretical faith will not produce anything other than a mental concept of the truth. But it will not actually produce anything Of lasting value to Yahweh or to His ecclesia. So, therefore, as far as our life and the truth is concerned, it is intensely practical. It is not theoretical. And so, therefore, we may well say, if we're defining faith, that faith is what we do because of what we believe, because of our conviction. It is our faith and our trust in our Heavenly Father and our knowledge and understanding of what is required of us in our responsibilities to the truth that drive us onward in the truth. Nothing else is important. And the great enemy of manifesting a faith like that, brethren and sisters, is the enemy of apathy. The enemy of indifference. Whereas we've already said David could will have said not well well, but he could have said considering his own problems and involved in his own worries and his own strife he could have said look don't come to me with your problems you go to somebody else I've got enough problems of my own so you see here is David's respect for the will of Yahweh he made the matter a question of prayer but not only that he had the inter- we know that he had the intercessory presence of the prophet, Gad, but he also has the high priest. And you see, what David is doing here is that he is learning through the things that he suffers. Exactly the words that are applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in the epistle to the Hebrews, that he learned through the things that he suffered. Now, David has been suffering in these recent chapters that we have been studying together. He has been undergoing intense suffering, trial, pressure and persecution. But his trust has been in Yahweh. And every time, Yahweh has delivered him. Now what David is simply doing is for others what Yahweh has done for himself. And that's the truth at work. That is the truth working in the life of of an individual. And you see, when David puts this question and asks Yahweh what he should do, we must understand that David's question on the matter was not whether he could enhance his own reputation, whether he could solidify his position, whether he could increase his own standing in the eyes of the brethren. Nothing of that nature came into David's mind and he wasn't interested in that and he didn't ask about that. All he was concerned about was what was the will of Yahweh. And that's got to be our consideration. In our day by day, life in the truth. we was not considering, considering himself, or how he would be affected if he moved this way or that way, whether he went to pe- help the people of Kailah, or whether he didn't, didn't enter his mind. There was only one thing that interested him, and that was what was the will of Yahweh. And you know, brethren and sisters, the pressures of life often become very, very intense So much so that we become involved in fighting our own battles in life. Like saying to ourselves, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to handle that? How am I going to avoid this? Or how am I going to overcome that? Or something or other. The pressures of life become very intense. And sometimes we forget to put it to our God as to what his will is. In particular matters in our lives. Will he be pleased with what we do? Will he bless what we do? And if we what we feel we should do is not in accordance with his will, will he direct us accordingly? And you know, the lesson that comes out of all of this is that the more we learn to defer to the will of Yahweh by trusting in in him, the closer we will develop a relationship with him. And the closer we will draw to the principles of the truth in an active way. And it's really most important that we realise and appreciate the necessity and the value of that very, very wonderful principle. We have to learn to to make decisions according to the teaching of the Word. And then we begin to eradicate the the rashness of self-will from our thoughts and our actions. And we will grow and develop in our ability to discern the presence and the power of Yahweh to see the presence and the power of Yahweh at work, at work in our own lives, as we trust in him and place our confidence in him, in all things. And so David was not going to just simply go the other way, instead of saying, look, I've got enough problems of my own, go and see somebody else. He wasn't going to do the opposite either. He wasn't going to say, all right, you need help? Right, okay. And it'll take me uh, an hour to get all my men together and then we'll be on our way. He wasn't going to do that either. Verse 2, therefore David inquired of Yahweh. And that was the mind of that man. And that is something that we associate with the life of David. So we're reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 12 and verse 2. When Paul says, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And so that's the mind of David as he has has approached with this great drama involving these men and this city who were being besieged by the Philistines. And so he gets his reply. In verse 2, Yahweh said, go. And you know, when you think of it, Yahweh answered David. But by this time, he no longer answered Saul. That's very important, because Saul had shown a disposition that he had turned away from Yahweh. He was not interested in the principles of exercising faith and putting his trust and confidence in his God. David is the very opposite. So David he hears and David he answers, but Saul he does not. So we should thoughtfully consider David's circumstances at this time. That he is still on the run, as it were, from Saul. He is facing every kind of peril and danger at the hands of this king, who has now become almost half-crazed in many ways. And here he is now at this point, contemplating further conflict with the Philistines. And you see, it's almost as though you, we can get a picture in our mind of David being more and more boxed in. He's got enough problems just to even surviving against Saul who's got a much bigger army far more men far more power far more influence in the land at this particular time David's almost boxed in here and then he gets an appeal to help from others but you see here's the point brethren and sisters when Yahweh says go David goes he didn't stop to think well, now, just a moment It's all well and good for Yahweh to tell me to go, but what are the dangers involved in this? Aren't I laying myself more open, going out into the open to fight for these people at Kailah? What's going to happen to me there? I'm going to lay myself more open to Saul. He doesn't consider anything like that. The principle is, when Yahweh says go, David goes. And that is expressive of real trust and confidence in Almighty God. So that to believe in God and to act accordingly when hope seems far, far away, every kind of hope that we could ever consider, when it seems far away from us and we still act in a way that we know is right and in accordance with the will of the Father, that is faith in action. And we need Yahweh to take care of the problems in a way that we, are, we can't do, in a way that's far beyond us. He's not bound by our limitations. And so here is David displaying this very, very wonderful attitude. And we're reminded of the words in Psalm 56 and verse 11, which is a nice verse to place alongside of these particular early verses here. When David says there, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. And here is a classic example here of David in verse 3 and verse 4 doing that. He's really in a very bad position. He's not in a position to help anybody, from the human point of view. But that was his policy. That was his faith coming out. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Psalm 56 verse 11. And you see, when David says that, we must understand that this was not the mouthing of a mere platitude, as far as David was concerned. That was his state of mind. And what a tremendous exhortation it is for us all. And so, as far as we are concerned today, we must continually consult the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation, as Paul says in the 2nd of Timothy, chapter 3, and verse 15 and 16. See, David is not involved in a warfare against Saul, strictly speaking. He's not even really literally, spiritually involved in a warfare against the Philistines. David was involved in the warfare of faith. He was involved in a warfare which put his faith to the test time and time again as to whether he would have trust and confidence in Yahweh. And so that was the way David went about things. And of course, as we've said, it should have been Saul as the king of the nation who went to deliver the city of Kilar, not David. But Saul remained uncaring about his real obligations. And instead of doing what he should have been doing, he was consumed with hatred and bitterness for an innocent man. He had nothing against David whatever. When Jonathan had asked him on more than one occasion, what evidence is there that David is worthy of death? Saul couldn't answer. He couldn't produce anything. David had served Saul faithfully and loyally and had never betrayed him in any way whatsoever. But you see, here is Saul... Avoiding his real obligations and responsibilities, while David fulfills his in the spirit of faith and faithfulness. And it's incidents like that that will help to remind all of us to examine ourselves and make quite sure that we are at least striving on the right path, that we're still going in the right way, that we are striving to manifest the David characteristics and not the Saul-like characteristics which is the flesh. In these two men, we've got the illustration of the flesh versus the spirit. I and mean, in the conflict between them, that is evident, isn't it? And so in verse 3, David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Kilar against the armies of the Philistines? Now you see, David hasn't expressed that doubt. His men weren't as strong in the faith as David was. But we can understand those men without that feeling. From a purely human standpoint, what David was planning to do in leading his 600 men out against the Philistines at Kyla was a foolhardy thing to do. And these men turned to David, and although they haven't lost confidence in him at all at this stage, they, they, they say, we'd be afraid here in Judah. What about if we leave where we are and go out into the open to fight the Philistines? Won't we be in a worse predicament? They were aware of the fact, not only that Saul was on the march against David, but also that the Philistines were everywhere throughout the land. And so, David wants to uh, assuage the doubts and the fears in the minds of his men. So, what does he do? He does exactly what we would expect David to do in verse 5, 4. David inquired of Yahweh yet again. You see, he wanted to prove to his men Look at verse 40. Then David inquired of Yahweh yet again. And Yahweh answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kailah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So David and his men went. So you see, we ourselves will exercise sound wisdom if we always avail ourselves of the counsel of Yahweh to seek God's help and strength and guidance and to try upon the basis of our knowledge of his will to be guided by him in all our ways and to do that which we know will be wisely in conformity with the things of the word and the things that have been revealed to us and in all other matters constantly go to him in prayer constantly seek guidance and direction that our feet might go in a path that will be acceptable to him and not be ruled simply by our own desires and our own needs or feelings. And so David and his men go out and it says in verse 5 that they fought with the Philistines. No doubt David, being a a man of some military ability, would have seen to it that the Philistines were taken completely by surprise. Certainly they would not have been expecting an attack from David and his group of men and they brought away the cattle, not only their own cattle, but the cattle that they would have taken from the people of Kila, stolen by the Philistines. Then it says in verse five that he smote them with a great slaughter. And you see, next to that we should note that Yahweh was true to his word. And you know, there's tremendous comfort in that assurance. David had asked, he'd been told, Go. To satisfy his men, he had asked a second time, and Yahweh had said, Go up against the Philistines, I'll deliver them into thy hand. What happens? David smote them with a great slaughter. As always, Yahweh was true to his word. What comfort there is in that. Keeping a hand in that, let's look again at the mind of David on these matters in the Psalms. In Psalm 143, just a brief look at a few verses here that give us the kind of thinking that David would exercise under these circumstances. Psalm 143. And verses 8 to 10, we to see where we put our trust, what we've got to do in regard to these matters. We have, you might recall, at an earlier class, spent some time with Psalm 142, which was a prayer when he was in the cave, when he was in Adullam, and under great pressure there. But look what we have here, the mind of David, expressed in prayer, in Psalm 143, and at verse 8. He prays... Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my life unto thee. Deliver me, O Yahweh, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. And that was what David was concerned about, upholding the righteousness of Yahweh and doing that which was right and acceptable in the uh, the eyes of Yahweh. And so in verse 6 of the chapter, we find that it says that it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Kailah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. In other words, when he fled from Nob, where all, the Philist- where, where all the, his brethren, the priests, were slain around him, he hadn't lost his head completely, and he had brought certain of the priestly garments with him. And so therefore, he had brought these with him, and they are now available to those who were with David. And so, this of course is relative to what happens here. Now in verse 7, It was told Saul that David was come to Kila. And Saul said, God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. So, once again we learn that Saul has established a very proficient spy network throughout the country. He had his own private KGB sort of set up. And now what he's going to do as we're going to see in a moment, is he's going to put pressure upon these brethren. The men of Kailar, Saul's going to come there and he's going to put pressure on them. In the same way as time and time again in our own lives in the truth, we have pressure put upon our faith. And we'll see what happens here. But look at the statement and the foolhardiness of Saul. It was told Saul that David was come to kailah and Saul says... God hath delivered him into my hand. What an astonishing statement. You see, he didn't know whether God had delivered him into his hand. In fact, we know that he hadn't. And we know that Saul is totally wrong in this. But Saul believes what he wants to believe. And you know, brethren and sisters, that is a great danger in the truth. Sometimes we have to face up to grave issues in our lives in the truth that are not always pleasant to have to face. To perhaps face the fact that, well, in handling that we did wrong and we need to make amends for that. Or we need to look at that again and see where we went wrong and why we went wrong. Sometimes we very often have to look at things very, very closely and not always very pleasantly from our own point of view and not simply believe what we want to believe. To decide, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I've got every confidence that God will be with me. But we haven't even approached God. Is there any evidence here that Saul had asked Yahweh to deliver David into his hand? Not that he would have done in any of it, but is there any evidence of that? None whatsoever. And when Saul should have been concerned with saving his nation, he has the temerity to assume that God had delivered David into his hand. For, he says, he is shut in. And of course he felt that David was in this fortified city and that all David had to do was come and knock on the door and say to the men of uh, excuse me brethren, but this man David who has just been here and saved you, I want him, deliver him up and you'll be alright and you won't have anything to worry about. That's how Saul had it worked out. And you know, we can easily work things out ourselves our own way, assuming that we will be cloaked with a, uh, a pious cover for what we do. But it won't work out that way. It won't work out without the David spirit. The Saul spirit will avail nothing. It is the David spirit. And you see, like Saul, we can ourselves, so very often in life, make our own imperfect standards for spiritual morality. The standard for what we should do or for what is right in any given situation. And according to those same standards, we may judge the weaknesses of others as well and act against them or something like that that is, that is not in their best interest or ours either. You see, it is always easy to believe what we want to believe. That's human nature. Or should we say, that is the flesh. It is always easy to believe what we want to believe. And that was Saul's great difficulty. And we don't want to be like that. So you see, when, da- when Saul says here, God hath delivered him into my hand, it was the same thing as saying, God has forsaken him. It means the same thing. If Saul believed that God had delivered David into his hand, it was the same as saying, God has forsaken him. And that was the judgment that he passed against David, that it was wrong. And you know, that same judgment, God has forsaken him, was a judgment that was passed against the Lord Jesus Christ also, time and again. God has forsaken him. Who does he think he is? But every time, that was wrong. And we know that many wrong and evil charges have been laid against the innocents throughout the ages. And their one and only consolation is that Yahweh will vindicate their innocence in due time. And we know that David here is a type of Christ in that sense also. Because on the basis of men's estimates of Christ's character, remember that according to Isaiah 53 and verse 4, he was smitten of God and afflicted. There is a way in which that statement is literal. But the way in which the people of Israel used it, they used it against Christ. Not that he suffered the will of God and suffered privation and trial and persecution and the most dreadful of deaths in accordance with the will of God. But they used against him words of this nature. They accused him of being smitten of God and afflicted because he was not a good man or a godly man. And why did they so cruelly misrepresent Christ's character? And the answer is because of their own lack of spiritual perception, their own lack of spiritual mindedness. And in that regard, we're reminded of the words of the Lord himself in Matthew 7 and verse 20, where he gives us the only yardstick by which we may understand the motives and the intentions of others when he said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And remember the context there was that of wolves in sheep's clothing. Those claiming to be the trusted and trustworthy servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who were underminers and betrayers of the truth. Wolves in sheep's clothing. The Lord said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And you know there are three important words there in that verse. First of all, by their fruits, ye shall know them. You should be able to see and recognise from your own mature knowledge and understanding of the word of God, what their fruits are. But then the next important words is ye. By their fruits, ye shall know them. Which is putting the emphasis upon the fact that every brother and every sister exactly in the same position as David was with his understanding should be able to discern and they should have that ability to to discern through a regular study and meditation upon the things of the word and the example of the life of Christ himself above all else. And the third word there is by their fruits ye shall know them. You should be able to identify the wolves in sheep's clothing. You should be able to know that. But you see, Saul didn't have the spiritual discernment and neither did these men whom David went to help. And so in verse 8 of the chapter, we find that Saul called all the people together. Saul called all the people together to war, to go down to Kailah, to besiege David and his men. How ironical that is. Does Saul say, well look, the first thing we ought to do, brethren, is to get down there and deal with the Philistines and relieve the men of Kilar, then we can see what we'll do about David. He's not concerned about the safety or the welfare of the men, women and children who are his brethren in the truth. Not concerned about that. He says to besiege David and his men. That's all he's got in his mind. David's thinking about the people. David's concerned about them and their welfare and relieving them from the pressures that are upon them. But not Saul. Doesn't care. So he goes down there to put the pressure upon these men. And so in verse 9, you see, here was something that Saul had not allowed for because David had access to Yahweh. He had a faithful prophet and he had a faithful priest. In verse nine, it says, "And David knew that Saul secretly practised mischief against him." And he said to Abiathar to the priest, "Bring hither the ephod." Now we see how important that ephod becomes. Saul secretly practised mischief. Now David knew that. When I told at this stage how he knew, but Yahweh saw that he knew. Saul was contriving mischief. In actual fact, the word is rendered devised evil in Proverbs 3 verse 29 and in Proverbs 14 verse 22. And incidentally the Hebrew there does not convey any idea of secrecy whatever. Our, our King James Version says Saul secretly practised mischief. The word practised literally means to forge And you know how men use iron and beat iron, heat the iron and bang it and build it and thump it to forge an instrument or forge something. That's the idea literally of that word. And it was usually something that was done quite openly. And what Saul was doing here, he did quite openly. There was nothing secret about it. But David says to Abiathar, bring hither the ephod. So it implies that this was David's usage of this means of seeking Yahweh's guidance. Uh, in the earlier incident also, in verse 2 and verse 4, although the ephod is not mentioned there. But in verse 10, let's look, let's look what happens now. Then said David, O Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Kailah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Kailar deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down, as thy servant hath heard? O Yahweh, Elohim of Israel... I beseech thee till I serve And Yahweh said, he will come down. He will come down. So you see, David gets his answer. He knows what's going to happen. But notice those words at the end of verse 10. To destroy the city for my sake. Saul is not only totally unconcerned about the welfare of the people of Kailar, but he would destroy that city, if need be, to get hold of David. It's absolutely incredible. Absolutely astonishing. And they will betray you, says Yahweh. You can be quite sure of that. And so here we find these men of Kailar, whose saviour, in effect, is David. We know it was Yahweh. But David is the instrument. He's their Savior. And they turn upon Him and they betray Him. They betray their Savior. And in that sense, David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they did the same to Him. They betrayed Him. And Yahweh says they will deliver thee up. Without thinking twice about it. Can you imagine? Instead of turning to him and saying, look, we'll deny anything to, to do with you, whatever. You can go your own way. We will wash our hands of this matter. You're free to go. They will willingly betray David, a man whom they have greeted with shouts of praise and cheers of gratitude. They will betray him ruthlessly and mercilessly, just simply to save their own necks in the interest of their own self-preservation. How fickle and faithless is human nature. And remember the case of the Lord himself in Matthew 21 and verse 9.
1: How they said, Hosea
0: to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And four days later, crucify him, crucify him. What's the difference? Human nature in both cases they had no integrity these people. And so in verse twelve, then said David, Will the men of Kylar deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, They will deliver thee up. So in verse thirteen, then David and his men, which were about six hundred, arose and departed out of Kyla and went whithersoever they could go. That means the Hebrew grammar there and the, and the tenses there indicate that they didn't really know where they were going. They had no plan at this stage. All they knew was that when Saul was coming out of them, after them and they had to get out of there. So in other words, when Saul arrives, confident that he's got David by the throat now and he'll never get away at this stage, David and his men are gone. What does that tell us? That it doesn't matter what our motive is or how we act, or what we do. No one can ever frustrate the purpose of Yahweh. And whatever happens, we must never be found in Saul's position of actually fighting against Yahweh. Because when he made that statement, God hath delivered him into my hand, in verse 7. Do you see what he's doing? He's fighting against Yahweh. What is Yahweh's determination? To deliver David out of the hands of Saul. Because David has already promised that Yahweh has promised that David is going to be the next king over Israel. You can't; no one can frustrate the purpose of Yahweh. And so Saul now becomes madder and madder. And in verse fourteen, we find David abiding in the wilderness of the strongholds, a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. He goes further south now into the land. But look at look at Saul's doing. In verse fourteen, does Saul at last come to his senses? Does he say to himself, look, something's going wrong here every time. I've got him right within my grasp and then he's gone like a will o' the wisp. Does he come to his senses? Does he get down on his knees before God and seek reconciliation with his God? It says Saul sought him every day. Saul sought him every day. And how sad and tragic it is. Brethren and sisters, when a brother or a sister in the truth allows their mind to be dominated and obsessed by the wrong things. And that's Saul's undoing here. If only he had thought of the words found in Proverbs 1, verse 10 to 16, of which we'll mention only a few. You know what, you know what is said there? My son, if sinners entice thee, Consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood, let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Know who has their mind upon Yahweh and upon their loyalty to the truth and the things of the truth and walk with them, but don't walk with others. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Now those are the words of Proverbs 1, verse 10 to 16. And it may well have been that Saul and many associated with him may have gained the key to eternal redemption and eternal salvation if they had heeded those principles in their lives but they wouldn't do it. So verse 14 goes on to say here, And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. And so here is the wonderful hand of providence at work. We should take one lesson from these words above all others, and that is that of all of the unfolding of this great drama, there are the Philistines there on the scene, the men of Kilar fiercely and frantically trying to defend themselves. David coming into the scene to go to war against the Philistines to deliver the people of Kilar, get their things back. Then Saul comes into the scene with his army. What a drama is unfolding here. You know the greatest lesson of all their brethren and sisters? It is simply this, that Yahweh was in charge of that entire situation. For all the frantic to and froing, even as far as David was concerned, He and his men fought and they fought valiantly. Saul tried to fight to gain his end. The men of Kailah, they fought until they were free and then they were happy to betray their Saviour. With all those things going on, above all else, it was Yahweh who was in charge of that situation. It was Yahweh who did not deliver David into the hands of Saul. And you know in a psalm, Psalm 32 and verse 7, David once wrote this, Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. In Psalm 32 verse 7, and you'll find similar words again and again throughout the Psalms. Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. And tonight we'll leave you with this thought: that Paul the great Apostle, was of precisely the same state of mind concerning his persecutions, his trials, and the afflictions that came upon him in the truth when he wrote in the 2nd of Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, Out of them all the Lord delivered me. And as wonderful as those words are, from the pen of Paul in the second letter to Timothy, He is actually quoting the words of David because those words come from Psalm 34 and verse 19. And so if only we will learn to develop more and more intimately, more and more fiercely we might even say because the truth is something to be seized upon, isn't it? And held on to. If we learn to develop this attitude of David, an attitude of trust and confidence in Yahweh, then we know more and more that He watches over us if we strive to serve Him in the spirit of the truth. We know that He cares for us. And no matter what happens to us, as long as we remain faithful, as long as we remain true, as long as we remain loyal, as long as we uphold His righteousness in all the affairs of life, no matter what happens to us, in the end, he will see that we are vindicated.